Thank you. I'm so delighted to get to teach this morning. I watched uh, David Capes, Dr. Capes, teach last week. Such a fantastic job. He started with Sesame Street and just went on from there. And if you missed it, I do hope you'll have a chance to see it. Uh, I get emails from people at times, and my uh, buddy brother Rick Meadow, Rick's around here somewhere, there he is, sent me one and said, you know, this seems appropriate for class. I'm not sure if it was or not. But technically, Moses is the first man to download files from the cloud using a tablet. And I thought, uh, yeah, Rick, that may be appropriate. Uh, uh, so, um, And then I was asked this morning about what kind of tuna I'm eating right now. And uh, so I threw that on there as well. Uh, I've been eating this Ortiz Bonito del Norte. That's Lubbock Spanish. Chris Dupont's over there, and he's saying it's not quite... Bonito del Norte, but uh, that's, it. that's all I got. Okay, so with that, by the way, did you know that's the best tuna out there that you can buy right now in terms of what it tastes like? You want the kind in olive oil, they also do it in some tomato sauce. I think they do that just to get you sick, but the one in olive oil is really, really good. It might be the goat. Are you familiar with the term goat? greatest of all time you should be on Super Bowl Sunday with Patrick Mahomes playing because it I was going to wear a Patrick Mahomes jersey I was going to wear my shoes my wife said you know if I were a Philadelphia Eagles fan that would really put me off and bother me I don't think you can do that I'm like who is a Philadelphia Eagles fan but I decided instead of putting that up for the goat, I would put up some tuna and talk about the tuna. You know, what? Who, there's no tuna like that tuna. There's one that's close. But that tuna is really, really good. I, I can't find it to buy it in the stores. I've been buying it off the internet. And, and, and it's, it's, I, I'm, I've made a run on it. I, I'm not sure they're, they're going to have to go catch some more for me to be able to buy it. But it's really great. I don't know a tuna that good. And you're saying, well, why are you making this big deal out of tuna? Well, for two reasons. Number one, I do have a lawsuit pending against a major company who sells a tuna sandwich that our testing showed didn't have tuna in it. (laughs) But aside from that, and, and in fairness, Subway swears that our testing people were wrong. So... But aside from that, I wanted this in here because I want you thinking about what's like that. What's the greatest? I mean, the whole point of a goat is the greatest of all times. So what is like that? And the reason that's important is because we're looking at that minor prophet book of Micah. And so if we take Micah out today... What we're going to do is we're going to look at some different aspects within the book. We're going to go through three things. Point number one, I want to talk about... Micah as a story of bookends. And then the second thing I want to talk about is the meat of the sandwich. And then finally we'll do points for home. So let's begin a story of bookends. Now, here's what I'm talking about. Micah begins with the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Chapter 1, verse 1. And then we've got the end of Micah, 
It's like two verses from the end. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? Micah 7.18. And I put those up there because the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, Devar Adonai, which came to, look at this down here, to Micah. Okay? Let's get it up there and we'll make it look a little bit better. Micah. Micah is really got three different things going on in that name. Me is the first sound. Me just means in Hebrew, who? Me. Who? Ka. When you put ka, one of the things that ka can mean is the idea of like. Who is like And then you've got this yah at the end, which is an ah sound. And that's an abbreviation for the name of God, Yahweh. Micah's name means in Hebrew, who is like Yahweh. Yahweh being the name that God gave Moses for who he was. Now, a good practicing Jew will not pronounce the name Yahweh. They will simply say either the general word for Lord, which is Adonai. And that's how most modern Bibles translate the name of God. They translate it as Lord in all capital letters. Or a Hebrew might be reading, and the way I was taught to read it, when I was taught by uh, Tuvia Klein, Dr. Klein, he wanted us to say Hashem, which means simply the name You don't say the name, you don't pronounce the name. When you come across it in your reading, you just say Hashem, just say the name. So here's an abbreviation of the name of God. Who is like Yahweh? That's the question that's inherent in the name of Micah. Or Micah is the way you would probably have said his name at the time. Micah Who is like Yahweh? You got it? That's the start of the bookend. The end is who's like a God like you, pardoning iniquity. This poses the question, who's like the Lord? And then the whole book is answering it. Nobody. Nobody is like the Lord. You might say, or hear people say cavalierly, my God, there's nobody like the God. I'm not sure who your God is, but nobody is like God. Got it? Those are the bookends behind this book. It starts out asking the question, and, and knowing that the answer's coming from Davar Adonai, it's coming from Davar Hashem, it's coming from the word of Adonai, of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh that came to Micaiah, or Micaiah, I guess, Micaiah would be more like it. Micaiah, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, who is like our Lord. And then we get the meat of the sandwich, which answers it. Now, if you want to know something 
one way to find out in America, if you want to know who ran a red light, you can go to a jury and have a trial. And do you know how you do something at a trial? You put on witnesses. You call a witness to the stand and you say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Some states don't say, so help you God. Texas still does. Do you, most judges, they don't have to. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And the witness says, I do. If the witness says, probably, judge will not let the witness testify. But the judge is going to tell every jury in every trial, Mr. Lanier is going to get up here and make an opening statement to you. I will tell you what the lawyer says is not evidence. The evidence comes from the witnesses that take the stand. I'm an advocate. I'm not the evidence. A lawyer's not allowed to give testimony in evidence, generally, when that lawyer's also practicing as the advocate. Okay? So, this book opens up in kind of trial mode. And the first witness is being called. Do you know who the witness is? God. God is coming to the courtroom. Here it is in Micah 1 verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention. Oh, earth. This isn't just like certain people. It's for everybody. Pay attention. And all that's in the earth. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. That word for witness, it's right over here. It's ed or aid, depending upon how you were taught to pronounce your Hebrew. Ed or aid, witness. Let me give you an example of how it's used in Leviticus 5 verse 1. So you, you know what kind of word we're dealing with when it says the Lord is being called as a witness. Leviticus 5 1. This is in the law of Moses. This is the law that Moses gave. Here's what he said. If anyone sits, no, if anyone sins, in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, if he doesn't speak, he'll bear his iniquity. If you're a witness called to testify and you've seen something and you fail to show up, you're at fault. Well, God's seen something and God's coming as a witness to testify. Have you ever been around the president of the United States when he's traveling? You've seen it on TV. Nobody arrives quite like the president except if you're talking about God even the president of the United States does not arrive the way God does 
I mean, if the president was to come here, if President Biden were to come here to speak to our class today, there would be a limo of uh, an escort of limos out there. There'd be police officers on motorcycles. There'd be secret service all over the place. The president of the United States could not come in here to speak to us without an incredible entourage. What do you think happens when God comes to testify? It's quite an impressive arrival. Here it is. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And again, every time you see Lord in those capitals, that's Yahweh. That's the name of God. The Lord is coming out of his place and he'll come down. And he'll tread upon the high places of the earth. He's going to tread. And that word tread can mean stomp. It can mean walk. But within this context, it's stomping. He's going to stomp on the high places of the earth. Now, high places were a particular problem for Israel. High places are, in the mindset of the ancients, they thought about God being up in the sky. They didn't understand the world's round, and up in the sky one way is not up in the sky the other. They thought of God being up in the sky. So, in the world that surrounds Israel, you've got a bunch of pagan people who think the closer they can get to the sky, the more likely their gods are to hear them, to pay attention. So they would go to hilltops and mountaintops. They would go to high places and erect their altars there in hopes that the gods would see them and pay better attention. This Bama, which is translated high places, and I'm sure it's the root for Bema, which is the elevated platform in a synagogue, um, same root. But high places here, that's not our God. Our God doesn't need us to elevate for him to hear us and pay attention to us. The premise that you would need to elevate yourself to get God to pay attention to you denigrates who God is and it denigrates who you are because God pays attention to you. In fact, he'll pay attention to you sooner or no, in a more positive way, the lower you are. You try and lift yourself up to be worthy of God's attention. And that's the haughtiness and pride that he tries to get rid of in you and me. So if you look at a passage like Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14, um, and especially verse 14 at the end of it, Deuteronomy 12, look what Moses had instructed the people. Moses says, these are the statutes and rules that you're going to be careful to do in the land the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under the green tree. 
You're supposed to tear those places down, not worship at them. You know, verse 14, he says, um, you at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, that's where you're going to offer your burnt offerings. Don't do it on the high places. Now, by the time of Micah, the temple had been built by Solomon, had been dedicated to the Lord, and that's where people were supposed to worship and only supposed to worship God, Yahweh. But they weren't. In the northern kingdom, they had their high places. In the southern kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem, They still would worship idols even in the temple. So here, here's, I mean, and, and, and we're sitting here and we're 2,600 years removed. But it's not hard to get into their mindset. First of all, if you're the king of the northern nation of Israel, not the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom, do you really want your citizens, to go to the southern kingdom to worship the Lord in Jerusalem? No. You don't want to show that, that, that you're insufficient in the northern kingdom, that you're the rebellion, that you're the break-off. So they built, and the kings ensured that they built these high places and said, you just worship God in those high places. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to the southern kingdom. Don't take your sacrifices down there. Don't bolster their economy. We sometimes have to fight those people. That's everyday life. That's politics. God doesn't countenance that. God's coming down and he says, I'm going to tread on the high places of the earth and the mountains are going to melt under him. Valleys will be split open. It'll be like wax before the fire, like Niagara Falls poured down a steep place. When God comes, when he shows up, he will take the high places, the places of false worship, the places that are set up for us for political purposes, the places that are set up for us for economic purposes, the places that are set up for us just because we want to be right for God. And he will melt those mountains. He will tread upon them. He will stomp them down. And he was coming to do it. And so Micah continues to say, God's bringing judgment on you. And he's bringing judgment on you because of your sin. My, uh, one of my son-in-laws is here. He's like a second-year med student which means we're able to tell him how we're feeling, and he always says the same thing. Sounds like a cold. <laughs> they learn that clearly in the second year of med school. But Micah uses medical terminology here. Micah says, God would love to try and treat your sin, but your sin is incurable. Paul talks about us being dead in our trespasses. It's not like we're going to get a little bit better. The sin is incurable. Here's the way Micah says it. Her wound is incurable. 
And now it's not just in the northern kingdom, it's come down to Judah, the southern kingdom. It's reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. I mean, this is, this is an incurable disease. And God's coming to testify to it, to bear witness to it. Now, you might be saying, well, I mean, why would God do that that way? Why would God be that way? And the answer is, as I've shown you, Israel was warned. They were told, destroy the high places. They were told, don't mimic that type of worship. They were told to worship where God sets it apart. They had been fully warned of what God was going to do. And so God the witness comes down to do it. All right. Anybody out there like puns? Some do. Some don't. What do you call a knight who's afraid to fight? Sir, render. <laughs> Micah starts making a bunch of puns at this point in the book. But his puns aren't funny. They're just puns in the sense of plays on words. And it's all part of God's judgment that's coming for the incurable disease. So these puns, and scholars aren't fully aware of all of the ramifications of the puns because pronunciation varies over time and and there are expressions that change over time. So I've grabbed some that seem easiest to understand. For example, the first pun uh, is, is on gath. And Gath, the, 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 where Goliath was from, Gath sounds like the, the Hebrew for treading on grapes, stomping on grapes to release the juice. And he talks about how in Gath they'll be weeping, you know, like releasing the juices from God stomping on them. And he says, and then in Bethlehem, he says, just roll yourselves in the dust. Bethlehem, it's over here. This little letter right here means in. And then you have bait, which means house. Or it's spelled in English B-E-T-H. Bait. House. In house, la afra. Bait, la afra. And then he says uh, to roll yourself. There's roll yourself. In the Afar. Dust. Afra. If you look carefully, I and Pei, Resh, those three letters are reproduced right here. You're not going to get this reading the English. In the house of dust, roll yourself in dust. Now, Bethlehem was a real name of a real town. It was a dusty town. I mean, you could translate that Lubbock. Roll yourselves in the dust. This is a good way to translate it. In the house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. The next pun. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. Shafir, it's over here. 
Shafir. Shafir is a word that sounds like beauty. I think the Septuagint translates it kalos, beauty. Um, the Vulgate, the Latin Bible by, um, what's his name in the 400s, translates it with pulcare, the Latin word for pretty. Thank you, Jerome. Pass on your way, inhabitants of beauty town, in nakedness and shame. You're not going to be so pretty. Pass on your way, inhabitants of beauty town, in nakedness and shame. And this is God's coming to testify, and he's going to be doing the unexpected. He's going to let the people in the house of dust roll in the dust and just go ahead and just eat it. He's going to take the people who think they live in the beautiful town and they're going to be going around naked and shameful. He's going to go to the inhabitants of Zanon. And he says the inhabitants of Zanon aren't coming out. Zanon. Right here. Zanon. Look at how close it is here. Za'a. Za'a-na. Za'anan means to go out. And so he's saying the inhabitants of Za'anan, of going out town, they're going to be staying in. They are not going out. The inhabitants of Maroth. Wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Zaroth, I mean Maroth, excuse me. Maroth means bitterness. The inhabitants of bitterness town, they're waiting for good, but disaster's coming. They ache for good, yet disasters come. They're not going to get it. He puts these puns one right after another. He's got another one in verse 14. The houses of Oxib shall be a deceitful thing. Oxib. If you look at the Hebrew letters and you just want to try and... I could have done a Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the other. Um, but you can match up that goofy looking letter. It's an olive with that letter, an olive. The cough with the cough. The Zion with the Zion. The bait with the bait. It's the same thing. Because oxib, that word oxib means deception. So the houses of Deceptionville are going to be deceptive. Now, I want to take a moment and digress. One of the comments I get sometimes after class is, how can I ever hope to read the Bible and understand this stuff? Please understand that the Bible is a book that can be understood on so many different levels. And one of my opportunities is to try and bring you something that you would not just get at home reading it yourself. If I'm just giving you what you're getting at home, then I'm not that useful to you. You can stay at home until we get the connection groups going. Then you're going to want to. 
but, but my goal is to find things that are not something you get by yourself. So don't ever get discouraged about your Bible study because you just say, well, there's no way I'd get that. What's the point in me reading the Bible? God will still speak to you. Look, I didn't get this part of the Bible until I took Hebrew and translated Micah in Hebrew class. Okay, so God's coming down in judgment. We know that he's going to tread upon the high places and melt it. But you might be asking yourself, just what were they doing that was wrong? I mean, what's got God so upset that he's turning these towns upside down? Literally, by their names. Let me give you just one example of what they were doing wrong. Here's a passage out of Exodus chapter 20. This is like Ten Commandments stuff. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. I left out the R, sorry. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or anything else that's your neighbor's. You don't covet it. As Kevin Parker sings, be above it, don't covet. You're saying, who's Kevin? He's just a friend. Um, now, with that as a commandment, look at what they were doing. Micah 2, 1 and 2. Woe, boy, <laughs> woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. They're lying in bed at night scheming. When the morning dawns, they do it. They figured it out at night, and then the next day they do it because they have the ability. They covet fields, they seize them. They covet houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Property rights were very important in ancient Israel. Property was a gift from God, and it went to families. And there was an elaborate process set up. And those properties got returned to families, even if they borrowed debt on them in the year of Jubilee. But look at a map and get a feel for what's going on. Because remember, we're reading in the Bible, but this is real world stuff. So let me throw this up there. This is a hand-drawn map. I cannot get in any copyright trouble for this one. These are the hills that surround Jerusalem. That's your Dead Sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This are, these are the coastal plains. The Philistines live in the coastal plains. And they also live in the hills, the Shephelah, that get close to the mountains of Jerusalem. Now the Philistines are real bad enemies of the Jews. Morasheth, where Micah's from, as David explained last week, is right in here in the lower part of the hills. Morasheth, as a city, was or a town was built up by a king to provide protection for Jerusalem from the Philistines. They'd have to get past the fort that was built as Marisheth. Second Chronicles 11, 
7 through 9. Give us that list. 2 Chronicles 11, 7 through 9. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem, and he built cities for defense. He built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Beth-Zur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marashah. It's the same word, different form. That is where Micah's from. Now, if that's a fortress town, what's it going to have in it? It's going to have troops. It's going to have army. It's going to have generals. It's going to have those in charge. And this is a beautiful place. You've got these gorgeous hills. And one side you can see the mountains that have Jerusalem. The other side on a clear day you can see the Mediterranean Sea. This is like primo vacation home. And this is what the generals and others were taking from the people. They coveted the land and they wanted it. Micah says it this way in Micah 2, verses 2 and 3. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and they take them. Therefore, the Lord's going to remove it from them. They usurp it from the people, God's going to take it from them. To an apostate, to someone who is a pagan, God is going to give the fields that the usurpers took away. They oppress a man in his house. Therefore, thus says the Lord... Against this family, I'm devising disaster from which you can't remove your necks. You want to treat your neighbor that way? You want to covet and figure out how to get their fields? You want to steal from them? And claim it's your right because you, you've got the, you're a general and you've got the army behind you? You want to do that? God's going to take it from you. Don't think you're going to live with it. That's a glimpse into some of what was going on. You may be saying, yeah, well, was there anything else? Oh, yeah, there's a lot in there. We just don't have time to get through it all today. But I've got time for another one. How about pay to pray? Also known as false prophets. They had professional prophets. Hey, have you got a problem in your life? You come to me, and I'll pray for you if you give me enough money. In fact, if you give me enough money, I'll prophesy over you and pray over you for great success. I won't say anything you don't want to hear. Whatever you want to hear announced over your life, you just come pay me enough and I'll do it. Meanwhile, you've got a genuine prophet out there. You've got Micah out there, and they're castigating Micah. The, the fake prophets are saying, uh, hey, stop that, man. Stop that. You know, these are the people who are paying us good money to prophesy. You're going to ruin our gig here if you're acting like God's upset. we got a good paying gig going. Look at this passage in Micah 3. Thus says Yahweh, who is like Yahweh? Thus says Yahweh concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace, 
when they have something to eat, but declare war against them who doesn't pay them. You give me some food, I'll declare peace over your life. You don't give me any food, well, God strike you down dead. That's what the false prophets are saying. And, and these false prophets have been chewing out Micah. We got that in chapter 2, verse 6 and 11. Don't preach, they preach. One shouldn't preach of these kinds of things you're preaching. Disgrace isn't going to overtake us. And Micah's reply is, you know, if a man goes about and utters wind and lies, saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink, then he would get to be the preacher of the people. In other words, if somebody will stand up and say, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of God, get drunk and have fun. That's who everybody wants to go listen to. But nobody wants to listen to the person who says disgrace is coming because of the way you're behaving. What you're doing. God was not amused over this. Look at Micah 3, verses 6 through 12 for a moment. Micah 3, verses 6 through 12. David had looked at this last week, but I want you to put it into this context now. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, declare war against him who puts nothing in the mouth. It's going to be night to you. You're not going to be able to see diddly squat. Darkness to you. You're not going to have any divine insight. The sun's going down on those prophets. The day's going to be black over them. They're going to be disgraced. They're going to be put to shame. They're going to cover their lips because they don't have an answer from God. God's not speaking anything through them. It's going to be obvious. But not so, Micah. He's filled with power and the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare transgression and sin. I mean, this is what he's there to do. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Israel. You detest justice. You make crooked what's straight. You build Zion with blood, with Jerusalem with iniquity. You give judgment for a bribe. Your priests will teach if you pay them enough. Your prophets will practice divine inspiration if you give them enough money. And then they lean on the Lord and say, Isn't the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us. They have the audacity to say that they're speaking on behalf of God? No. No. So because of you, you're going to be plowed up like a field. You're going to become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. In other words, you may get one of those, 
you may have grabbed one of those primo houses up on the hill with the beautiful view, ski in, ski out. It's going to be destroyed. Um, I have a saying that I teach my lawyers. I don't know where I got this saying from. I likely stole it from somebody, and I just don't remember. If I stole it from you, I apologize for not giving you credit. I don't know where I got it from, but I've had it for a long time, and so I'm going to tell it to you right now. The last time I used it, I used it in reference to... We had a lawsuit where we were, where a company had done something that was really, really, really bad. And I said, we need all of their documents because we're going to find it in their documents. And somebody said to me, well, we don't want to look at their documents. What if their documents say good things for them? I said, I don't care. I want all of the documents. Well, what if they say good things? I said, time out. Please understand this rule. You cannot practice vice virtuously. You cannot practice vice virtuously. The documents will tell the tale, I have no doubt. No one can practice vice virtuously. They are opposite of each other. And these prophets may say, oh, we're leaning on the Lord. We're leaning on Yahweh. But it's going to be revealed that they're not. Did you know, I'm going to preach for a minute now. One of the things that really frustrates me are loud, outspoken people who claim to be speaking for God. And they get on the media, and they get in all these different places, and they have about the most unchristian attitude, and they have about the most unchristian life I've ever seen in my life. And they claim to be speaking on behalf of God. And I'd be scared to death if I were them. Passages like this would petrify me. Because God's not going to take lightly someone who says, I'm leaning on the Lord, in the Lord, in our midst. No disaster is going to come on you. When that's not true. And that's not of God. We just need to be very careful of this. All right. There's a whole bunch more in Micah. We're going to try and do it all next week. But I really want to have time for some points for home here because Dale Hearn's here live. Usually he watches on TV and I figure he doesn't watch to the very end so I don't have to pay attention. But Dale's the one who got me started doing points for home like 20 years ago. He says, you really need those at the end of your lessons to like sew it together. I said, okay. And so he's made me, he's engraved it on rocks and you'll see it at the library, points for home and, and things like that. And he's here live, so I really need to pay attention to these. Here's your first one. When it comes to God, you can expect the unexpected. God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
my ways aren't your ways. We can expect the unexpected from God. We can expect God to come down to testify. And when his feet stick on the mountains, those high places are getting destroyed. And I'm still firmly convinced that we all have high places in our lives. We have all set up these hills where we worship. As opposed to trying to get into the presence of God. To worship him where he is. And I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm not going to point out anybody else's. I'll point out mine instead. When I was growing up, I went to a great, great church. I loved it. We sang out of a blue hymnal. And we sang a cappella. Now, when you go to a church that sings a cappella, everybody has to sing. Because if not, it sounds miserable. But you can put five people in a youth group and those five people can sing and it'll sound great because they will sing their heart out and they sing in four-part harmony. And I, 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 it was a great, great upbringing. And do you know what happened when I got to be college age? I thought, ah, oh, this is so old. God is dead here. This is not my kind of music. I need something that's better. I need something that's alive. I need something that speaks to my soul. This is not, this is just old stogie worship. Old stogie? No, stogie's a cigar. It's not old, old folky worship. Old fogey worship. And I erected a little hill where I thought it was right to worship. And I looked down disdainfully on those who didn't understand the need to climb my hill for worship. By the way, I would give an awful lot to be able to go back and experience that old fogey worship again. <laughs> Some of those songs stuck into my soul and they still come up in my head all the time. They made a real impression on me. And I'm very thankful for them. I'm glad God grew me out of that state of thinking, this is the way I ought to worship. And he's tried to get me to understand that he's everywhere, not just on my hill. There are lots of ways that God's ways aren't my ways. But I will tell you this, that because he's different than us, in some ways this is like a good thing and in some ways it's not. <laughs> So, for example, you have this passage in Micah. They oppress a man in his house, so God says, I'm against them. And I'm going to devise a disaster. They're going to gut, I'm going to gut. They're going to destroy, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to bring it on them. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not letting it skate by. God's not necessarily the way I am in that regard, and that's not a happy moment. But God's also the unexpected God here. And as Paul says, he's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us. God, the unexpected, is able to do things in our lives that we never dreamed possible. 
He does things we're not even bold enough to ask for. God, the unexpected. Then I want you to remember the bookends. Because I didn't have time to spend on the end of the bookend. We got the word of the Lord that came to Micah. But at the end of a book that talks about who is like God, he says, who is, like, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Because as, as David said last week, you cannot talk about the judgment of God in the Old Testament or New without talking about the end of the story which is God seeking, forgive, seeking to forgive, seeking to love, seeking to extend mercy. How different would our lives be if when we sit in judgment on someone, we also sat in mercy? We also sought mercy. If when we were harsh with someone in our mind, we were also interceding for that person in our heart and seeking God. I think the world would be a different place. And I think that our church, not this congregation, I'm talking our church, the, the, the large church that belongs to the Lord, would be a breeding ground of, of love, of justice, of goodness, but also a breeding ground of reaching the lost. And I really want that to be part of my life. The older I get, the more important this is to me. Um, I, 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 need, I need to be here. I need to dwell here with these bookends. So I hope you'll join me because next week we've got a lot more to come. But that's going to end us today with the Minor Prophets. And we'll put Micah back on the shelf till next week. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings that you will take this message and you will quicken our hearts to seek your will. Father, we confess to you that we sin. We confess to you that we sin. We would love to be different people. We pray and invite your spirit to work in our hearts, not just to convict us of our sin, but to give us the, the, the self-control, the love, the gentleness, the mercy, the insight, the discretion to see how to grow more holy before you and to be a better image for the world to see of you, our God, whom we worship and adore through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.